We can't do a study on prayer without looking at John chapter 17, called the high priestly prayer. Some people call it the real Lord's prayer. It is a stunning chapter and one that we can only just barely graze the surface of in one session. I feel so inadequate to even approach that because it is a, it is a prayer that Jesus prayed at a critical time in his life. And the truths in it are magnanimous. And this is just a chapter we need to study and read and absorb. Let it fill our spirits as we just take one truth at the time. And one of the most amazing things in here to me is the beautiful picture of the Lord's love for us. Let's pray before we start. Our Father who art in heaven, we are so grateful for your word and so grateful that you have given us such incredible uh, messages from you. I pray that your Holy Spirit will invade what we're hearing this morning. We want to hear from you. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us and reveal your heart and your mind to us. Convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment and let us bow before you and let us absorb this precious word. Would you now, the Holy Spirit of God, take over and do your ministry to us, in us, and through us in this time. I pray in the almighty name of Jesus. Amen. It is a treasure of treasures. When we look at John chapter 17, God's word allows us to share these last intimate hours of Jesus' life and the time that he goes to the Father not long before uh, he takes his place on the cross. He talks with his father, but the truths here about those of us who are his are incredible. They are deep. They are eternal. They are expansive. And so we see a glimpse of the place that we as children of God hold in his heart. Understand that in this scripture, we are allowed to know the thinking of Jesus in the presence of the Father immediately before the crucifixion. Some consider this to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. And so let's look at it together. Just the top of it. And sometimes even the top of it, the skim off the top of it, is incredible and is overwhelming. If we reach back a few chapters before we get to John chapter 17, we see that prior to chapter 17, Jesus has been doing hours and hours and hours of teaching. He's got to be exhausted when he gets to this place. And in chapter 11, if we could go back and skim through for a minute, in chapter 11, uh, we have the resurrection of Lazarus. And Jesus' great proclamation when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. At the end of that chapter, the plot to kill Jesus becomes much more focused. In chapter 12, it is only six days before the Passover when Jesus will be crucified. In chapter 12, and in those, the beginning of those six days, Jesus went to Bethany to visit Lazarus, uh, whom he had raised from the dead. That's a fascinating story to imagine raising a man from the dead one day, and then some days later, going back to visit. Fascinating. And so Lazarus was there, and Lazarus' sister, Martha, served supper that they had made for Jesus. And their sister Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with costly perfume. It was her precious treasure. And then she wiped his feet with her hair. 
Scripture says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Multitudes came that day because they wanted to see Lazarus. They wanted to see the man that had been raised from the dead. And they also wanted to see Jesus who had raised him. On the next day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as the people cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus announced that the hour had come. Um, it was time for him to be glorified. It's interesting that when we look through scripture, if you read through the gospels over and over again, you see that over and over again, he said, the hour is not yet come. The hour is not yet come. The hour is not yet come. And then here, all of a sudden he says, the hour has come. And so he said, and if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. And scripture tells us that he said that, giving an indication of what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up on the cross, like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Then we move to chapter 13, and there we have the Last Supper. He's in the upper room with the 12 apostles. And in that chapter, Jesus defines the mark of a true Christian. He says, love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Then in chapter 14, he said, I'm going away. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if or since I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then he told them to ask in prayer in Jesus' name, in his name. And he said, those who love him are the ones who keep his commandments. He says, the way everybody knows, the way I know, if you love me or not, is if you keep my word. That's the mark of a true Christian. Well, in chapter 15, then, he explains the vine and the branches and fruit bearing. And abiding in him includes answers to prayer. He called believers friends instead of slaves. And a prayer, again, he, he just, I'm sorry, not a prayer. He proclaimed again, love one another, love one another. In chapter 16, he promised the Holy Spirit, the helper, and told us uh, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside to help. And so sometimes we just call him the helper. And so then in chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus said, these things have I spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but... Take courage. I have overcome the world. And then he started to pray. John chapter 17. This is a recorded prayer and, and it's so valuable to us because most of the prayers that Jesus prayed were not recorded. He gave us the model prayer that we've studied. And sometimes you'll see a very brief prayer and you'll see God answer from heaven. But usually you see Jesus went away by himself to pray. Jesus went away into a mountain to pray. But so this is unique because we've got the whole thing and, and it's thrilling because he gave us this whole prayer. So in these preceding chapters, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's promised them peace and joy and support, supply, answered prayer, power, intimacy, the Holy Spirit, fellowship, trouble, and triumph. So he's just been through all of that with them. And now 
he stops to pray. So right after this promise of ultimate victory, see it in verse 33 of chapter 16, these things have I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation that could be pressure or affliction. He says in the world, that's what you're going to get. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So right there on that promise of victory, then he prays. Now let's remember that things don't just happen. Um, God makes things happen. The sovereignty and involvement of God must always be on the tip of our minds uh, when we understand that God is involved and he is ruling in every situation. Well, Jesus is praying here in accordance with the will of God and the word of God. Now, we've talked about that a good bit in some of our previous sessions where we get to know the will of God by the word of God and we pray in accordance to that will. And so I hope that we're learning that we even pray things to God, asking God for things that he's already said he was going to give. Well, Jesus does this here. Jesus participates in that as he prays in accordance with the will and the word of the Father. God will be the one to fulfill the promises that Jesus is making. He's made some promises to the disciples in these preceding chapters that we just kind of skimmed over. But he also knows that the promises he's going to make about the future are going to be fulfilled by the Father. But he's praying in accordance with the Father's will and he knows he's going to do it. So he's cooperating with God in prayer with what God says he's going to do. So he just goes right on, just from chapter 16 right into chapter 17, he just goes right on, this time praying out loud to the Father. And probably while Jesus is praying this prayer, Judas is out doing his deed of betrayal. Um, Jesus intercedes now for those that he has been teaching. So he says, the hour has come. This is the hour for the event of the ages. The most poignant, important hour in all of history forever. And here it is. And Jesus says the hour has come. Now this prayer is in three segments. In the first five verses, Jesus prays about himself. And we're going to look at what he is relating to here in the first five verses. Then in verses six through 19, he prays for the disciples, those who were there, those who were with him uh, during this period of history, those to whom he's been talking, he prays for them. But then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for future believers. He prays, excuse me, he prays for the church. That would be us. So let's first of all, look at the first five verses. I'll read them. These things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that the son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. How's he going to do that? By the cross. And this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Wow. So Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and he first of all identifies God as Father. And he says, the hour has come. Now, um, we've already said that before in the Gospels, over and over again, we see the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Here he says, this is it. The hour has come. And for every event in history, there is an appointed hour. You remember even Galatians refers to in the fullness of time, Jesus was born. There is an appointed divine hour for things that happen. And so the hour has come 
for the cross. And Jesus prays, glorify thy son. What's he saying? He's saying, fully display your son before everybody. Fully display, let them know who I am, that I'm your son. And so glorify thy son. What's Jesus' motive? Is it that he wants to be glorified? No. Look what he says. Glorify thy son that the son may glorify thee. So Jesus is looking for a way to glorify the father. How's the father going to be glorified? In the obedience of the son. So as Jesus goes to the cross, the father is going to be glorified. John chapter five and verse 23 says, whoever honors the son honors the father. They're never separated. Whoever honors the father honors the son. So back and forth, the father honors the son, the son honors the father, and they are inseparable. And Christ is wanting to be glorified in order that it may reflect the father's glory. God's glory is the sum of all of his attributes. Christ's glory is the sum of all of his attributes. And they're both the same because God and the Father are the same in character. The cross and the resurrection display attributes of God that never dawn dawn on us perhaps anywhere else. The cross displays the attributes of Christ. What are they? Love, mercy, power, righteousness, holiness, goodness, grace, wrath, justice, judgment, wisdom, knowledge, and anything else that I've left out that's in Scripture. In the cross, we see the heart of the Father, excuse me, and the heart of the Son. And at the cross, we see all of those characters, all of those attributes of both the Father and the Son. So Christ looks to the cross as as a place to display all of the attributes of God. And right there, they're on full display. All the love, all the mercy, all the compassion, all the wrath against sin, all the judgment against sin. And so When we say glorify, remember that glory means weight, value. And so his value, his weight is unleashed when he is on the cross. It provides eternal life with God. That's one of the reasons the cross is so important. It provides eternal life. Uh, Look in verse 4. He says, I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. Jesus has been obedient. He came to do his father's will and his obedience and submission to the father will culminate at the cross. He says, I've done it. I've done. I've done what you told me to do. And he's speaking of the cross as if it's already happened. But right down to the very last drop of blood he shed, he was obedient to the Father, gladly obedient to the Father. It's what he wants. He wants the Father to be glorified. So what do you do? He prayed, not my will, but thine be done. And from the cross, Jesus said what? It is finished. Paid in full. I've done what he he has sent me to do. Salvation is open to everyone who wants to receive it. And so... The cross was the way home for Jesus. Look at verse five. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Then in verse six, he goes on to pray for his disciples. And so now we're beginning to have a glimpse of the Lord's intercession. We talked about praying for others in our last session. And so right here, we're going to see Jesus intercede and he's going to intercede for his disciples. Let's read this passage together. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world, the disciples. Thine they were and thou gavest them to me and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. 
For the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. Those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask for you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Where's the evil one? He's in the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctified in truth. Truth leads to holiness. Sanctified in truth, sanctified, set aside, set, a, set apart unto holiness. How do you get there? Truth, the word of God. Well, Jesus now is praying for these disciples. And so now as we begin to have a glimpse of the Lord's intercession, we see here he is referring particularly to the 11 apostles because where's Judas? He's out doing his thing. And so they were heading for serious trial. They're heading for serious stress. And so Jesus prays for them. True disciples are the personal property of God. True disciples are the personal property of God. I remember years ago, I don't know if you still see them now, but sometimes football players or kids would wear these shirts, these jerseys that would say, property of the University of Georgia Athletic Department or property of this, you know, these, some athletic department. And we saw it. But the truth here is, if we're children of God, we are property of God. And you can put that on your shirt if you're saved. Property of God. And so he first refers to the work that he had already done with them. He says in verse 6, I have manifested thy name. What did he do? He demonstrated and interpreting the, interpreted the meaning of Jehovah. That's who God had been until Jesus came. And so when Jesus came, it was like, here's what he looks like. Here's what he sounds like. Here's what he'd say. And so he stated in personal form, Jehovah God. He is the revelation of God. Then in verses seven and eight, he says, he has given them the words of the father. I gave them your words. Verse seven, they have come to know that everything thou hast given is from me for the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them. And so he says, I've given them their, your words. Now listen, of all of the things Jesus could have given them, he didn't give them property. He didn't give them temporal, temporal wealth. What did he give them? The word of God. That's what he gave them. That's what he left with them. Verse nine, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom, um, let's see, of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. In order to reach the world, 
Jesus did not pray for the world. Is that interesting? In order to reach the world, Jesus did not pray for the world. Instead, he prayed for those through whom he would reach the world. Think about it. Jesus' ministry of intercession, and it's still going on today. Jesus' ministry of intercession is for his own who are in the world. He died for the world and sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so Jesus prays for his own who represent him in the world. That's his intercession. Well, what does Jesus ask for? What does he ask for? Look in verse 11. I'm no more in the world and yet they're in the world and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name. Keep them in thy name. What's his name? His character, his salvation. Keep them in all that you are. Keep them in thy name. Why? So that they may be one, even as we are. Now, the unity of believers probably needs to be a whole lesson. But here's a glimpse of it. So that they may be one as the Father and Son are. Think for a minute. How are the Father and Son one? How are they one? They're in complete agreement. Complete support of one another. There is a unity of believers of the body of Christ all over the world. There's a unity of believers that comes from the Holy Spirit when we are all placed into Christ at the time of our salvation. We hold that in common. Believers hold that in common. And then verse 13, what does he say? But now I come to thee and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy made full in themselves. He wants them to have joy. Verse 15, I do not ask for thee to take them out of the world, but to what? Keep them from the evil one. How? How will he do that? Look in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. You know how we're kept? By being in the word by knowing the word, by walking out obedience to the word. And so we as believers are separated from the world by the word of God, by the word of God. Jesus set himself aside to be identified with us. He set himself aside. He became man. God became man that he might be identified with us. And so here we see that we in turn are to be set aside, sanctified, that we might be identified with him. It's a scary thought, but the truth is that when the world looks at us as believers, they need to see a representation of Christ. They need to see what Christ would say, what he would do, how he would act, what his attitude would be, and they need to see the priority of prayer like it was in the life of Jesus, in the life of believers. So in the first section, Jesus asked for two things. He said, glorify the Son, that was relational, and then he said, glorify me, that was personal. In the second section, Jesus asks basically two things for his disciples. He says, keep them, there in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in thy name. And he wants us kept for why? That we may be one, that we may be in unity. This is not just mental agreement or getting along. This is deep Trinity unity within the hearts of all believers. And then two, in verse 17, he says, sanctify them sanctify them, set them apart in truth. So he's praying for protection from the enemy and maturity and holiness. Those are the two things. Now understand what these disciples are, are, are about to have to go through. You might want to think about that. Jesus knows that. 
And so he's praying a prayer here that will be appropriate to them as they enter the coming days of their lives, as they witness the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And then as they are called to take the gospel into the world after the coming of the Holy Spirit. So he wants them completely set aside, sanctified for divine use, set aside for the Father to use. How's that going to happen? By walking in his word, by walking in truth. Now we move to the third section, verses 20 through 26. In this section, he prays for the church, the worldwide body of Christ, all those believers whose faith would come beginning with the testimony of the disciples. Let's read it. Verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone. I do not ask only for my disciples for whom I've just been praying. I don't ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. How many generations is that? Their word was the first word, then they handed it down and handed it down. And testimony after testimony, generation after generation, and the word has finally begun to happen in us in the 21st century. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, what? That they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us. That the world may, may believe that thou didst send me. So the testimony of the disciples is going to come down through history and ultimately include the church today and the church as it grows until the coming of the Lord Jesus. We now are those disciples who are to speak the word and hand it down. He had you and me in mind. Think about that for a minute. That is stunning to my heart. He had you and me in mind, even here when he was praying before his crucifixion. Future prayer. He's praying for the future, for future believers. Well, what did he pray? He prayed for our unity. I'm not sure that's something that's really in full development these days. Prayed for unity. He's not talking about a common unity where everybody agrees and everybody votes for the same thing and, and you know, you just smile whether you agree or not. He's talking about the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. That's the example. What kind of unity is that? Look at verse 21, verse 21. That they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. I started to bring some styrofoam cups. Quite frankly, I walked out of the house and left them. But think about this. Let's say that I've got a cup here that's got Jesus' name on it, and a cup here that's got the Father's name on it. So let's say that um, God, Jesus just said, God is in him. So picture God in Jesus, and then I'm going to have another cup that says God, and I'm going to put Jesus in that cup. Okay, so God is in Jesus, Jesus is in God but there's a middle there that he's just talked about. So what you're going to have here is a stack of five cups. God is in Jesus. Jesus is in me. Write your name on that cup if you're a believer. Jesus is in me. I am in Jesus and Jesus is in God. What a place to be to know that you as a believer are in the middle of that, in the middle of that stack, you as a believer is your name. And that's what Jesus has said. 
that they may also be in us. Why? That the world may believe that thou didst send me. The oneness of the body of Christ, of believers, has to do with convincing the world that Jesus is God. That's the message. It has to do with convincing the world that Jesus is the Savior, that He's real, that it's authentic. It is the essential unity of holiness and love. Is that not what the unity of Jesus and God is? Holiness and love. The Father and the Son love what is holy and what is pure and what honors the other. The Father is out to honor Jesus. Jesus is out to honor the Son. What did he just pray early in the prayer? Father, glorify thy name. You know, let me do this so that you will be glorified, so that your plan will be complete. And Jesus is, um, the Father sitting up there going, I'm going to give my glory to the Son. I'm going to give my glory to the Son. Ooh. Ooh. Jesus wants us to confront an unholy, ungodly, confused, shattered, broken, lost world with holy, loving oneness. We're an army. The body of Christ is an army in the world. And he wants the world to look at us believers and say, Christ must be a saving God. Christ must be able to change a life. I see that in you. Christ must be a loving God. He must be a merciful person. And how are they going to get that information? By watching the behavior of the church. By watching the behavior of the church. So that the lost people can look at us and say, He must deliver from sin because look at the holiness of those people. Yet somehow we've gotten it in our minds that we need to act like them in order to invite them. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Loving, kind, merciful, compassionate, helpful, but not like them. What did Jesus pray? Keep them from the world. It is the unity of love and purity, and righteousness, and godliness. It is an internal unity that's going to affect our external. Look at verse 22. And when he, Jesus, had said this, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 22. And the glory which thou hast given to me, whew, I have given to them. The Father gives His glory to the Son. The Son gives His glory back to the Father. The Father gives glory to the Son. The Son gives glory back to the Father. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus says to the Father, I'm going to give this glory to them. What's glory? It's value. Value based on attributes. Value based on character. He says, I'm going to give them. How's he going to do it? By the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give them these attributes. Love, peace, joy, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. He says, I'm going to give it to them. Spiritual, eternal unity is still on his mind right there. Right there. Unity that comes from possessing the life of God. Now, in this age, in this dispensation, how do we possess the life of God? Because the Holy Spirit's going to indwell us when we're saved. He's going to come and occupy our spirits when we are saved. So Jesus says, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. The Father gave glory to Jesus when He became a man. Remember that uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So God gave His glory to Jesus. Well, 
now Jesus is going to, what he said in chapter 14, I'm going away. And so I'm going to give this glory. I'm, I'm going to be back with you and I'm going to give this glory to him, to them, so that this glory will still be on earth. And so here Jesus says, Father, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. The Son, Jesus, became the express image of the glory of the Father. You could look at Jesus and see what the Father was like. You could look at Jesus and see God's attributes. You could look at Jesus and see how God would think. What were his attitudes? <clears throat> Jesus was, Hebrews says, the radiance of his glory. It's like the sun has radiance. We don't see the sun. We see the effect of it. We see the radiance of it. So that when um, the Father sent Jesus, Jesus was the radiance of his glory. And now the Son has given it to us. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, as we behold it, as we study the word, we begin to reflect it. He called it from glory to glory. We're going to get better and better as we love him more and more, as we get better and better at dealing with sin, as we understand his word more, as we are in this word, absorbing this word, letting this word conform us, then we're going to reveal the glory of God more and more and more. God's attributes are to be on display in his people. I have to ask myself, is it on display in me? Do I reflect that? Can those around me, those in my circle of influence, look at me and see the attributes of God? Mm. They are on display in his people because we are in him cups. The father is in the son. The son is in us. We are in the son and the son is in the father. Partly what that means is if you want to get to me, you got to go to the, through the father and the son first. Can't get there without going through the Father and the Son. So God's plan is to radiate His glory through His redeemed people. Look again in verse 23. Why? <clears throat> that the world may know that thou didst send me. Now that word know, the, the tense of it is continually. I and them, thou and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may continually know that thou didst send me. Ooh, and the world will know. Look at this. The world will know that you love them even as thou didst love me. Satan ever tell you God doesn't love you? This right here tells us that God loves you as much as he loved Jesus. That is a mouthful to swallow. That you are that special to God, created by him to do his work. And what is our work? To reveal Christ to reveal him, to radiate his glory. And so what's he saying here? The, the, give them salvation in all of its fullness. Give them this common life that is shared with the father and son so that the world will know that you have loved them 
even as you have loved me. Mm. Camp out on that for a bit. You believe God loves you that much? Maybe nobody ever told you before that God loves you that much. How did God love Jesus? Wow. How did he love Jesus? I don't know if I know words. Infinitely, intimately, eternally. Salvation is all about divine love. All about divine love. Verse 24. I love this. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they might behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Mm. God's purpose in salvation is to bring us to heaven. And I just love this, that Jesus would say, I want them to be with me where I am, that they might behold my glory. That, that just thrills my heart. Did you ever go somewhere and see something absolutely fabulous and think, oh, I want so-and-so to see this. Maybe I want my husband to see this or my child's got to see this or my parents got to see this. I, I got to show this to them. And Jesus is saying to the Father, I want them to see this. I want them to see the real thing up close and personal in full view, not veiled so that it can be on the earth. I want them to be with me and I want them to see it. Oh, righteous father. Although the world has not known thee, yet I've known thee and these have known that thou didst send me and I have made thy name known to them and will make it known that the love where, wherewith thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. I want to call your attention for a minute to the phrase, those whom you have given me. It's several times here in this chapter. You know what that means in street language? My street language says that means we are the Father's chosen gifts to His Son. God chose to give you as a gift to His Son. Now think about it. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the world. So as Jesus Christ is God's love gift to the world, Jesus is God's gift to us. Believers are the Father's love gifts back to Jesus. You ever think about being a gift to Jesus from the Father? See, there's stuff here that's so rich, we don't ever think about it. If we didn't have God's word, we sure couldn't ever think about it. But God has chosen you as a gift of love to his son, Jesus. Consider yourself chosen. Consider yourself special. Consider yourself loved. Because God would love you enough that he would give his son to die for you. And then do a transformation that makes him able to give you back to his son. Only God. Only God. And Jesus says, Father, I want them with me in heaven. I want them with me in heaven. Why? So that we may see his glory and experience his love. Verse 26. I have made known thy name. I have made thy name known to them and will make it known that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. What Jesus is saying here, I'm, I'm going to continue doing this. 
Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's not only interceding with words, his whole life, his salvation is intercession to get us to the Father. It's to transfer us from the worldly domain to the heavenly domain. And he says to the Father, he says, I'm going to continue to make your name known. And so what they do? They gave the Holy Spirit to empower believers to show the world what Christ is like. And so he's going to keep on making that name known through the Holy Spirit and through the eternal abiding Word of God. Those are two things you can always count on. They're there. Wow. Heaven is all glory and all love. And Jesus died to pay our sin debt so that we could go there. Everybody that dies doesn't go to heaven. Everybody that dies lives eternally somewhere. The question is not, are we going to live eternally? The question is, where are we going to live? And so here Jesus has been praying and he says, Father, I want your name glorified. I'm going to the cross so that the world will know how much you have loved me and that the world will know that you have loved them as much as you have loved me. And we are going to continue through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the people of God who are willing to tell it, to tell the gospel to the world that says, Jesus saves. And when Jesus saves, you're really saved. And heaven is a place that has been prepared for you. And Jesus is praying that we as a church will live in such a way that the world will know that the Father has sent the Son and that this salvation is available to the world. Pray about these things with me. And let's seek the Lord as He teaches us how to pray. God bless you. Thank <laughs> you.